This morning I'm excited about the text that the Lord has us in. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 28. The reason why I'm excited is because in our yearly Bible reading, right about the 7th of September, we're going to land in the Proverbs. And the Proverbs to me have always just been wonderful, practical application. And if you're like me, I mean, I just simple-minded, I just, I, that's what I need. I need practical advice, practical in a sense that I can read it and then begin to exercise in it. And here in Proverbs 28, verse 13, we see great application. And that it says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And then right there we see great application. Three points for our study this morning. One, confession and repentance. Two, forsaking the sin. And three, rejoicing in the mercy. So Father, this morning we're asking that you would bring this word to life. That Father, in your great wisdom, as you have preserved your word for us this morning, that we might apply it and be doers of the word. And keep us, Lord, from just being hearers. Keep us, Lord, from that lukewarm mentality. We ask that you would embed in our heart, mind, and soul the kingdom perspective. For we know the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, Lord, we ask that you would ignite a fire in us tonight, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Hey, listen. As I underlined this verse in my Bible, I underlined it with the idea of, yes, Lord, keep me from covering the sins that so easily ensnare in my life. And when I first read this text, I just had in my mind the big sins that are often sins that easily ensnare us. But yet, uh, this last go-around at reading this verse, the Lord took me to a deeper uh, level in this verse. He had me go a little deeper into the text, and He used a very familiar passage and a very familiar Bible character. And so to further explain and help us in this text, I want to have you uh, turn to 2 Samuel. The very familiar character I'm speaking of is King David. King David is admired by many. As you go to Israel, those of you who will be going to Israel you'll see the King David Hotel because King David was Israel's greatest king that they've ever had. He was a great worshiper, a great warrior, a poet. He was the only man said in the Bible that had lived his life after the heart of the Lord. King David reigned for 40 years and he was prosperous in all his ways. Victorious as a warrior, as a worshiper, as a ruler, as a king. But yet we all know there was failure. We all know the failure and the familiar passage found here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, we see that he would now feed his flesh with the sin that would eventually ensnare and take him to a place of wanting to cover up the work of the flesh. Eyes no longer on God, but eyes on himself, as we often experience ourselves. So often, we desire to keep our eyes on Christ, but so easily our eyes shift to one another or to self. And having done this, uh, David would see that prosperity would be robbed from him. 
Let me read to you the text. It says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, that they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from the bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent an inquiry about the woman. And someone said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he laid with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was uh, doing And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food was to follow him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to the house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Wow. What a committed servant. Then verse 12, David says to Uriah, Wait here today also and tomorrow, and I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And in the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew There were violent men. Then the men of the city came out and fought, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah, the Hittite, died also. Ah, tragedy. Unbelievable story. Would make Hollywood just, yes, let's do this one. This one's going to make money. Why? Because there's so much deceits and lies. It's unbelievable. That this is our king, the warrior, the, the one who wrote the Psalms as we're reading them now, uh, so wonderfully written because he was in tune and his eyes were on the Lord. But at this point in his life, his eyes were no longer on the Lord. They were on himself and ultimately on someone else. And it's tragic because... It all began with that first verse, as it said, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings were to go out in battle. And believe me, there was no greater king than King David. And he was not an exception. He too was to be out in battle. He was a warrior as well as those who served him. And so right away we see the tragedy that King David was at the wrong place, at the wrong time. And this, my friends, was the start of his failure. Because 
Being at the wrong place at the wrong time would then set him up for verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked out on the roof of the king's house. Understand this, that the Hebrew verb form of walked suggests that he was pacing back and forth. In other words, it's suggesting that he was having sleepless uneasiness. In other words, there was no rest in him. Not the David that we read about in the Psalms. There was an uneasy, unrest, cannot sleep, go up to the rooftop and pace. What was that? The Spirit of God was saying, David, you are at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's why there was the uneasiness. And so not only was he to be out in the battlefield, but now he would find himself at a place of uneasiness that he would look and behold to see the beauty of a woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was great, beautiful, and I could imagine uh, probably really difficult in a time of temptation. But I don't believe that was the, the pinnacle point of the temptation because the real strength of temptation often doesn't lie in the quality of the tempting object but in the state of the heart and the mind of the one being tempted. Because David's eyes were no longer on the Lord, his eyes were set up for failure, so to speak. His eyes had already set themselves to failure. And so often we too are in that place. Because think about it. If you would put the beautiful woman of Bathsheba, if you would take her back maybe even 20 chapters and put her in front of David, the temptation would not be so great because his eyes were on the Lord. And when your eyes are on the Lord, you will not fall into such temptation. The temptation will be there, but like Jesus... Temptation will not grab a hold. You know, you, you, you think of um, Joseph. Joseph was equally tempted, if not in a greater capacity. Joseph, when he was in the house of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's wife, who also the Bible says was beautiful to behold, but not from afar. This woman was up in his face, grabbed a hold, was tearing his clothes off. Men, can you imagine that this man had his eyes so set on the Lord that he did what was right, and that was to flee. That was to flee, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.22. We're not to pursue the lust of the flesh. We're to flee. And that's exactly what Joseph did. That's exactly what David should have done. But he didn't. Because he saw beauty. Behold, he saw that it was good. But yet in the eyes of the Lord, it was ugly. Not her. The situation was ugly. Because he stood in disobedience. The pleasures of sin deceive us like the bait hides a hook. And that hook so just wonderfully just, just wants to get in there and hook you in. And that's exactly where David was heading. And so we must, as God's people, we have to call sin, sin when we see it. When we see temptation, we have to see it. And the only way you're going to see it is through the eyes of Jesus. See, if you're right now, if you're not sure about temptation or not clear or gray areas uh, uh, catch you in a bind, then friends, you need to get your eyes on Jesus because he gives all clarity. There is no confusion. There is no uneasiness in the rest of the Lord. Amen? That's a promise. But see, we live in a world that would wonderfully see this situation. They would, Hollywood would receive this because what? Because it's got a great affair in it. Not adultery. It's a love story, not lust. Oh, it's sexy. It's not sin. It's romantic, 
not ruins. It's destruction. And yet, as believers, we have to live vicariously through this man. And, and because it's so easy to say, yeah, this is a very familiar passage and I've applied it in my life before. But listen, the Lord has us in this passage today to apply to us today. And because it's the living word of God, he's going to have us apply it today, this morning. And so in verse 4, the failure continues. He lays with her. We know what that means. Yet, he knew this was wrong. And, and if David would have thought about this, he would have, if he would have just weighed the cost, if he just knew that the damage that was to, to become was an unwanted pregnancy... Murder of a trusted friend, a dead baby, his daughter being raped by his son, a son that would murder another son, a civil war that would be led by his sons, a son who imitates David's lack of self-control and would take the whole nation of Israel into ruins as a repercussion to being at the wrong place at the wrong time. See, this could have been avoided had he confessed that there was disobedience. See, if we roll back and think this all could have been avoided had he, on that rooftop as he's pacing, as the Spirit of God is Speaking to him, saying, David, you are at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's why rest does not lie in your soul. Because things are wrong right now. And yet, his response wasn't, Lord, forgive me for I have been disobedient. Because he lacked that confession, it would lead him into the next folly. And that was to fall into the lust of the eye. Now, please, let us realize that this Murder and deceit and lies could have also been avoided at this point had he confessed, Lord, forgive me for being disobedient. Forgive me for laying my eyes on that woman with lust in my heart. It could have been avoided. It could have been avoided when, when his servants said, Is this not the wife of Uriah? Again, opportunity to confess, yet he did not. And so on goes the drama. David would ultimately make a mess because of his lack of confessing. That's why I entitled the message, Confess or Be a Mess. Because brothers, when we don't confess, that is exactly what happens. And what I want to point out and what I want to make so clear this morning, it was in the minutia, the day-to-day little sins that add up and lead to destruction. Right? Because it's so easy as an outsider to say, yeah, well, I don't want to murder nobody. Surely I don't want to commit adultery. But yet, have you been disobedient? Are you somewhere where the Lord says, you shouldn't be there, son? Are you looking at things that you know you should not look at? And you know there's uneasiness and unrest in your spirit because the Spirit of God is speaking to you, wanting you to repent and confess. And yet, like David, so easily we grab the covers and we try to cover up. Especially in this setting. It's so easy to walk in those doors to have a a sense of, hey, everything's okay. But yet you know in the depths of your heart, habitual sin continues. Or in your heart you know you've disobeyed. Or you know you have rebelled. Have you been disobedient? Are you restless? Are you stressed out? Are you going to places that you should not go? Are your eyes wandering? These are those little things as they go unchecked 
will lead you to ruin. It says it in the Bible. It's a great truth from Proverbs 28. He who covers his sin will not prosper. And we're talking prosperity in the spiritual sense. Because we can look at Montecito and see that there are many sinners who are just prosperous beyond belief. But that is their great reward. But for you and I who are not of this world, our kingdom is to come. And that is where we are to place our eyes. When our eyes are set on Christ Jesus, when our eyes are set on Him, then temptation will be seen as He saw it. And he was able to deal with it properly. He was able to deal with it properly. And it's so sad. Listen to verse 14. It almost makes me just... I, because he's such a hero of mine. You read the book of First and Second Samuel, you can't help to fall in love. Especially me. I mean, this is, there's no manlier man than David. I mean, the guy wrote just unbelievable songs. He was a worship leader. He took out the giant. He wrestled bears. I mean, this man, I can't wait till the movie comes out. (laughs) But it's at this point that it's just grief beyond belief when it says in verse 14 in the movie, when David's cover-up was not working, he wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of who? His faithful servant gave him a letter. Here, take this. That letter was carried by the hand of the man who would be murdered. By the, by the, by the king, his king, who he just said, far be it. I mean, what does he say here? He says, he says to David, he says, wow, as you live, as your soul lives. Do you see the faithfulness of this man? And how was it that David was not able to see? I'll tell you why. Because his eyes were no longer on the Lord. They were fixated on himself. And when fixated on yourself, you've, you know. You try to reason with somebody, you try to reason with an alcoholic, their eyes are on themselves. Their eyes are on themselves. Or you try to reason with someone in this situation, in the midst of of the muck and the mire, it's hard for them to see. But thanks be to God. That our God, He says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not going to allow my servant David, the one whom I love, the one who loves me, I'm not going to allow this. So He raised up a prophet. He said, Nathan, go. Aren't you glad that that's the heart of the Father? Even in the depths of his wickedness, in the depths of David's wickedness, the Father says, no, I can't have this. So he raised up the prophet, and the prophet, Nathan, you guys know the story. Nathan just gets in his face, gives him a story about a man who was wicked. And David says, who is this man? I'll take him out. You are that man. You are that man. I can't read the story because I'll cry. The lamb, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And yet Nathan gets in his face and says, you are that man. And this is where we have to, once again, see the life of David and apply his response. Not his response to covering the sin, but his response to now dealing with the sin. And that is his repentance. Put your finger on verse 12. Nathan says, for you did this in secret... But this big old can that the Lord is about to throw on David because of what he had done, there's always repercussions to sin. Always. The Lord will forgive you, but the repercussion remains. Right? I mean, the Lord forgave him for the adultery. The Lord forgave him 
for the unwanted pregnancy, but does it make the baby go away? Does it make the pregnancy go away? No, it remains. You must deal with it. And that's what Nathan's telling David. You have to deal with all this. Your little secrets in the dark are going to be made exposed to all of Israel. And David's response is the response that you and I need to have. And that is, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. David's confession here is so simple. Because if you weigh the confession versus the confession of the first king of Israel, Saul. Matter of fact, let's go there real quick. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. And the very first thing that he says to Saul was, Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And then the Lord gives him his first duty. And that was to wipe out this wicked generation. And so the, so the, the new king would now go out to be obedient of what the king had just asked him to do. But guess what? He fails. He doesn't follow through. He is not obedient completely. Partially obedience is not obedience at all. And so the Lord sees that his new king is partially obedient, knowing that his heart was divided. So now God would say, I'm done with Saul. My first duty given to him has failed. And so he would now send the prophet Samuel to go and rebuke him and say, why have you been disobedient to the Lord? And guess what his response was? Guess how his confession was? It's found in verse 20. Being rebuked in the same manner, God, seeing the same type of situation, sends a prophet to go rebuke, and this is his response. He says, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. That's his confession. That's his repentance. But I have voice, uh, obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amaleks. But... The people, they spared the oxen. The people took the plunder and the best things, which should have been utterly destroyed. What's he doing there? He's putting the blame on the people and saying, Hey, I'm amazing. I've obeyed the Lord to the T. It was the people, and by the way, we spared the oxen so that we can sacrifice it unto you, God. Yeah, that's his confession. And then Samuel says, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is the iniquity of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Do you see the difference of the two repentance? The one was sincere in the fact of just, I have sinned against the Lord. The other was, Mm, there was, uh, it was the people, they didn't really obey. I kind of obeyed, but actually I really did obey. And friends, we often do the same thing. I do the same thing. When I'm being called to the carpet, it's so easy to put blame other places. And yet, David gives us a great example and that is to not shift blame. That is to not point fingers elsewhere. 
That is to really take ownership in failure and humility because it removes pride and it gives way for the grace of God. As it says in Proverbs 28.13, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Did Saul get mercy? No, because he didn't allow for it. What had been given to him? Absolutely. Look at the difference between a Judas and a Peter. Both have sinned greatly in the, in the eyes of God, right? But one was willing to be restored and one was not. Are you willing to be restored? Are you willing to, to heed the voice of the Lord? Have you sinned in the sight of the Lord? Listen, have you rebelled? Have you a stubbornness? Because it says, for rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is the iniquity of idolatry. And yet those are little sins that sneak into the life of the children of God and lead them to ruins. And because they're not so big in the eyes of like stubbornness and disobedience, come on. But yet it's in those minutiae, it's in those little areas that the Lord would have us confess because in doing so, we receive the mercy and right instruction and back on to the path that he has paid for us. Amen? Amen. So we, we have to apply God's word in our life because it's so wonderfully um, applicable. And that is to confess our sins, to not cover them up, to not find ourselves easily uh, shifting blame when we are being rebuked. The error when you err, is yours, and you must confess. Repentance is such a sweet word, and yet the world has painted it as this, oh, repentance. And listen, repentance, what makes it so beautiful is because it's not like the Lord is sending you to the principal's office. He's sending you to himself. He's saying, you're going in the wrong direction. You need to come back to me. And that's what repentance is, brothers and sisters. It's realizing, recognizing that you're headed in the wrong direction. Confessing that and then doing an about face and head back into the right direction. That's repentance. And it should be applied daily. Why do I know that? Because I look in the mirror and I see that I'm a sinner daily, hourly, continually. And so confession and repentance must follow in my times of error. At least I also get into the path of destruction. Are you with me? And I love it. I love that the Lord has this word for us this morning because David after he recognized his way of error, now rejoices. Even though there's a heap load of just hard times ahead of him because of the repercussion of his sin, he was now able to go into that time of tribulation or hard times with the peace and the rest of the Lord. How do I know this? Because it's documented in Psalm 51 as well as in Psalm 32. Let's turn there real quick. This is too good to not uh, take heed to it because it's going to take us to a little deeper level, a little deeper place to apply this, this passage in Proverbs 28. It's a hot day today, huh? <laughs> repentance, you know? Start talking about repentance. Get hot in here. Woo! Okay, listen. David in Psalm 32 says, and, and you know what, as homework tonight, read Psalm 51, please, in Jesus' name, write it down, put your bookmark there, go home, read Psalm 51, it'll bless you beyond belief, and if it doesn't, email me, I'll meet with you, and there is something greatly wrong with you, 
Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is that man. How happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. David, as he expresses this happiness, this blessedness, does so because he now has been restored back into the presence of God. And there is no greater joy, there is no greater happiness, there is no greater uh, love and kindness than being restored into the place of intimacy with our God, our King. Amen? That's why he's able to say this. But guess what, friends? This is an Old Testament uh, concept when it says whose sin is covered. His sin was covered because it was not removed because the blood of Jesus Christ had not shed. And yet, he was still able in the depths of his soul rejoice and be blessed and say, how happy is the man? How much more should we rejoice? Should we be blessed in knowing that our sins have not been covered, but brothers and sisters, they've been removed. Amen? They've been cleansed. So if he parties, we have to party even more so. Because our sins have been removed, not just covered, they've been removed. They've been removed, we've been cleansed. How happy should we be as David goes on to point out that, oh, what he's saying to you and I is like, man, whatever you do, don't cover your sins. Don't pretend like you ain't a sinner. That's what he says here. He says in verse 3, when I kept silent, man, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into drought of summer. In other words, he was a mess. Physically and spiritually. Brothers and sisters, let that be a truth to you and I. That when we distance ourselves from the Lord, when we try to cover our little sins, we ail and are... um, led into this place of drought, confusion, depression, unrest, pacing, so to speak, just no rest, just anxiousness. That's because the Lord is calling you to Himself because He knows in Him there is rest. He knows in Him is completion of who you were created to be. That's why, he's, that's why his hand was heavy upon David because he was like, oh, David, I long for you to sing songs to me again. But your eyes are on yourself. And so self will destruct. I don't know about you, Saint. I don't want to self-destruct. I don't want this. I want to, verse 5, acknowledge my sin. And in my iniquity... Not hide it, but confess it, my transgressions to the Lord, that He might forgive us of our iniquities, of our sin. For this cause, everyone who is who? Verse 6, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you are found. We are in the age of grace, and God is found if you're willing to do what the psalmist says, and that is to confess and pray. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. Listen to me. The Lord this day, at this hour, has formulated an opportunity for us to come and get right with Him. To come and get on our knees as before we take communion, we get right with him and say, Lord, if there be any wicked way, Lord, if there be any hidden sin, Lord, I open up to you my heart. 
Lord, show me where habitual sin, show me, because I'm trusting, believing, and confidence that the Lord is doing just that. That's why he has us in this text, because he wants us to appropriate this concept, and that is daily confession of our sin in the minutia, as well as in the big, so that we might be restored daily, hourly, because that is what victory in Jesus is walking in the direction of the path that has been paid for us, not in the direction of destruction. We're to repent and follow Him. Amen? We're to repent and follow Him. And, and, and here's the neat thing, is we get down on our knees and, we, and we, we, we can just rest. And maybe you don't know. Maybe you're like, man, Lord, I, I just, I don't know. What, what is it? Where in my life is it disobedience, rebellion? Lord, show me. And don't you know, brothers and sisters, God will reveal it to you if you're willing to wait on the Lord. I've instructed the worship leader. I said, man, I want a good, juicy time of, of repentance because I know what comes next. After a time of repentance is what? Rejoicing, refreshment, strength. We leave here just, mm, just ready to go back and fight the good fight. Amen? Amen? But you have to be willing to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord because in doing so, He will lift you up. You will leave here victorious if you're willing to be real with Him. Because as the proverb continues, as you confess your sin, then you have to really get this idea of, Lord, help me to forsake that sin now. We can't forget that because we find that in Jesus, in chapter 8 of, of John, as, as, as the Pharisees were ready to stone this adulterous woman, he was willing to forgive her. But in that forgiveness, he would send her to do what? Sin no more. He was saying to her, confess your sin and forsake it and rejoice in the mercy that has been given to you. That woman was able to leave in that manner. You have to purpose in your heart to do the same thing. To be able to stand in this place and say, Lord, if there's any wicked way in me. Because if a man says in his heart that he has no sin, he's only deceiving himself. The truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our sins and impute into us righteousness. But you have to be willing to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Draw near to Him because that's what He desires from you. He wants you to draw near to Him. That's the whole concept of repentance. is not to just slap you and say, man, you're killing me. It's to say, come unto me. That's the call of repentance is come unto me. But yet we get so stuck in the idea of repentance is just God saying, I don't like you, you bad person. That's not our God. Our God is filled with mercy in this age of grace. So we must find ourselves willing to confess. You know, to further this concept, just real quick, can you please turn to Revelation chapter 3? Oh, yes, Jesus. This is a good one. Because it's going to help us understand the, the whole concept as a whole of the proverb. To, to confess our sin, to forsake it, but to understand this part of rejoicing in the mercy of it. This, this chapter... We're going to read verse 14, as many of you may be familiar with it, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, at this point, is rebuking the churches. Now understand, for Saul, God sent Samuel to rebuke. For David, God sent Nathan to rebuke. But for his church as a whole, it was Jesus Christ himself that stood before a congregation that had already proclaimed him to say, you've lost your first love. It's this congregation that he would stand before and say, 
Um, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans writes this. These things says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness of the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, he says to this church, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and you have need of nothing. And do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? I've counseled you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and the white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent, Jesus Christ says to the church, not of non-believers, but a church of believers who had grown lukewarm because their eyes were no longer on Him. They were on each other and themselves. They had no need of a Savior because they were rich themselves. And yet he said, you are miserable, you are blind, you are poor, and you're naked. And, and yet he was rebuking them in a harsh tone, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say? Oh, he was. But listen. Verse 20, he says, after telling them to be zealous and repent. Because remember, that word repent was he was in their face rebuking them ultimately for the purpose of bringing them back to himself. And that's why you read, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Brothers and sisters, That is not a call to salvation. That is a call to the saints who have gone cold, who have gone lukewarm, who have uh, forsaken their Savior, their first love, whose eyes were on themselves. He was saying, man, be zealous and repent because I stand at the door and I knock because I long for you to dine with me, for you to be with me and I in you. And then verse 21, he says to Him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on the throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father at his throne. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ultimately, we rejoice in mercy just as David rejoiced because now the covers were no longer, uh, uh, they were exposed. He, he basically, this church had done what David done and just put a cover over their sins and Jesus came and he pulled them off and then they're naked and they're like this and he says, I want to clothe you. You're naked, but I want to clothe you. And I don't want your nakedness to be shame. I want to clothe you. I want you to be with me. I want to dine with you. That's why I'm knocking because I desire the intimacy with you. Ultimately, that is what God is doing for us this morning is providing the opportunity for us to go deeper with Him. And if you're willing, as deep calls the deep, as you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. As you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. And then you will be able to be, as David was, rejoicing and say, oh, how happy it was to lay my burdens down today my stress, my anxiety, my um, alcoholism, my just whatever it is, just lay it down at the feet of Jesus and repent, confess, forsake the sin and rejoice in the mercy. Amen? You know, on my way home from Stockton, because I was there and uh, we, we were driving uh, late last night. We got in around midnight. And uh, don't you love the five? The five just north of Bakersfield is just 85 in the slow lane. 
people passing you. It's amazing. And I honestly, I'm telling you, I was in the fast lane going 85 and people were passing me. And it was, for me, it was like, right? The flow of traffic? Isn't that what it is? Maybe I need to confess. I don't know. The Lord will speak to me. But in our time of driving, it was late. And so I'm just trying to stay awake. So I'm fostering conversations. And with me were three people who I love, who I've known for over a decade, because Ryan being one of them, who I was his youth pastor, Matt Smith, who sits back there, I uh, was his youth pastor, and his wife, Amber, I was her youth pastor. And so I just had a heart to ask him, hey, is there anything that you have against me? Like, have I wronged you? Can I just, I want forgiveness. I want the air to be clean. I want us to have a wonderful relationship. And I don't want it to be hindered by things in the past. So I just went from one to the other. And I got to Amber. I was all, Amber, is there anything? She said, well, there is one thing. (laughs) And I was like, whoa. She's all, it was like 10 years ago. I was all, 10 years ago? I was like, what? And then and Brian was like, wait, you said it doesn't matter how long ago. And I was like, you're right. Ten years ago, what? And then she shared, and then I was able to just say I'm sorry. And then it was just a sweet moment. We talked about it for you know, quite a bit of time. And I think if you and I are willing to have that mentality, to wait on the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything in there? It's just something hidden, no stone unturned. I just want everything to be right with you. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to say, I've been knocking. I want to come in. I want to dine with you. I and you, you and me, you right hand. Just, I love that visual in, in Revelation. Because one minute he's just in their face just saying, you this, that, this and that. Repent. And come dine with me. It's almost like his tone of voice was just that. You're naked. You're poor. You're miserable. Repent and come. Dine with me. I with you. At my right hand. Oh, I just long to be with you again. Jesus, we ask that that would be the case right now. That we would be able to truly in the depths of who we are, come and forsake the, the easy way, forsake the hypocrisy, forsake, Lord, the plastic Christianity and, and help us to, Lord, now confess what needs to be confessed, to get right where we need to get right. Lord, to just be able to yield to you this moment at this hour because ultimately, Lord, we long to rejoice as David did. We long to leave here saying how blessed is the man whose transgressions have been forgiven. Help us to lay our burdens down. Lord, help us that your spirit might lead us. Lord, that not a single soul would leave here without doing the business with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.